Welcome to Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church, and thank you for joining us for Central Study Hour, wherever you are and however you are joining us. We're very happy that you're here, and I know that a special someone in Zalapa, Mexico, will be very happy and blessed with us this morning that we're singing hymn 474, Take the Name of Jesus with You. This comes as a request from Miguel and Helen Shavala. We've heard your requests, and we're happy to sing this with you this morning. Let's sing the first and second verse. name. That was sweet, wasn't it? Praise the Lord. Our next song this morning uh, comes from another frequent uh, requesting and watching family in Osorno, Chile. Um, Victor Matamala has requested him 579. Tis love that makes us happy. Um, we're so happy that you are a faithful viewer and of course a faithful follower of our Lord who makes us happy. Amen. Let's sing the first and second verse of hymn 579. Wonderful, what wonderful, cheerful, rousing songs we're singing this morning, amen? 
If you have a special request, please visit us at our website at seccentral.org. Click on the contact us link. Make sure to tell us where you're from, whether it be Chile, whether it be Mexico, any corner of the world. We'll be happy to sing these with you in the coming Sabbaths. Our next song this morning comes from a new theme, a new topical uh, index of love in the home. Um, now, God is love. Yes, we just sang that with our song. And we know that if we want love in our relationships and in our home, we have to first seek Him. So let's sing this song this morning, hymn 650, Our Father by Whose Name, um, the first, second, and third verse. such love increase that every home by this release may be the dwelling place of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your holy Sabbath day that we can come together and worship you. This morning as uh, we, we worship and we study, we ask that you be with us. And we also just want to thank you for the love that you've shown us we ask to help us show that love to others in our relationships, in our homes, um, that if we want to love others, we have to love you first. We have to understand the love that you showed to us. Um, we ask that your spirit also be with Pastor Chris this morning. Um, and we ask all these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. Our lesson study this morning will be brought to us by Pastor Chris Buttery, our senior pastor at Sac Central Church. Thank you very much, and good morning. 
Good to see you this morning. I trust you have your swords, your Bibles with you, and uh, your study guides. We're in, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. I should just welcome you first. And uh, I see some folk back from Chile. Good to see you both. And uh, good to see everyone else here this morning. And those that are joining us, glad that you are doing so as well. Uh, We want to make sure that you uh, call in for your free offer. It's offer number 21522. Don't forget to put that C uh, right in front of it to help us distinguish between this program and our Receiving the Word program. And all you need to do is call in at 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at Let us know whether you want the CD or DVD version and we'll be happy to help you. We're glad you're uh, tuning in. And uh, please let us know where you're uh, viewing in from. Let us know how you're enjoying the programs right to us. Uh, we love to hear from you. Um, we're in lesson number nine. We're moving right along in the, our study in the book of Luke, and I trust you've been enjoying uh, the study as we've been going through it together. Jesus, the master teacher. Jesus, the master teacher. And we are looking at Luke chapter 4, verse 32, and uh, this is our memory text. It says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with what? Authority. That's right. Let's read it all together. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. That's right. Uh, William A. Ward said, The mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires. The great teacher inspires. And, uh, and there is one. There is one from whom all inspiration and wisdom flows. That flows from men and it comes ultimately from Jesus. Jesus, the maker, the creator of, of all. Uh, the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 5, that when Jesus came, he came as the light. And what type of world did he come in? Came into what type of world? A, a bright light world? Re- ready to receive him? No, the Bible says it was a dark it was a dark world. Um, there's an interesting and a pretty concise uh, picture of the type of world Jesus came into uh, when, it, uh, when He did, just there in the first century BC. Um, in the book, Education, page 74 and 75, this is on Sabbath afternoon's lesson. <clears throat> I just want to read this for you because it just summarizes the condition of the world that Jesus came into and why Jesus taught the way He taught and what He taught, what He taught. Um, she says, as they ceased to recognize the divine, they ceased to regard the human. Truth, honor, integrity, confidence, compassion were departing from the earth. Relentless greed and absorbing ambition gave birth to universal distrust. The idea of duty, of the obligation of strength to weakness, of human dignity and human rights, was cast aside as a dream or a fable. The common people were regarded as beasts of burden or as the tools and the stepping stones for ambition. Wealth and power, ease and self-indulgence were sought as the highest good. Physical degeneracy, mental stupor, Spiritual death characterized the age. That's the world that Jesus came into. Does it remind you of another age? Perhaps the one we're living in today? The light shone in darkness, we're told in John chapter 1 and verse 5. How was the light to shine in darkness? How does one explain the things of heaven to people who know only the things of earth? 
Not that you would try, but how would you explain, how would you explain to a wet fish what dry is? How would you do that? Um, it's said that awareness is largely the product of comparison. Awareness is the product of comparison. Uh, those who've traveled perhaps to other countries, how do you help the person you're talking to to appreciate what you've experienced there? Well, you use a comparison, right? You, well, you say something like, you know how we have this here, well, over there they have, they have this, and you do a comparison. You put one thing by the side of another and you try to explain what it is you're referring to. Now, this was the challenge that Jesus had when He came into this world, to try to explain the things of eternity, the things of heaven, His kingdom, to people who really had no idea what His kingdom looked like. Uh, and on, to top it off, Jesus had a more, more difficult task because He had to try to explain to people who already thought they knew what the kingdom of heaven looked like. So He had to un, unlearn them, unteach them, and then teach them the truth, you see. Um, and that's the challenge that Jesus had. And that's the reason why um, Jesus uh, shared and spoke and taught uh, using a lot of stories. Um, the Gospels record about 40 parables that Jesus taught. Um, and we can surmise that they weren't the only stories that Jesus taught in His three and a half years of ministry, but the Gospels record 40, 40 powerful stories. And in today's lesson, we're going to take a look at one or two of them to help us understand the things related to the Kingdom of Heaven. You think about it just for a moment, when Jesus came, uh, He was... He was God had, he had to, he wasn't trying to compare his kingdom with, the earth, with earthly kingdoms. He had to draw a distinct contrast. And so, in the minds of the, the religious people of his day, those who were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, who were they anticipating? They were anticipating a Messiah to free them from sin? No, they were anticipating a Messiah who would free them from the Roman yoke, right? Bondage. And uh, so, this is, this is their, and their, their vision or their view of a kingdom was, um, was, a, was a powerful kingdom, a kingdom that ruled by might and through force. So when Jesus came along and He said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a mustard seed, or it's like unto yeast, the disciples and those listening to Him must have wondered, what is Jesus referring to? What's He talking about here? Because in their mind, they had, a, they had the concept of domination, of force and coercion. But Jesus said, no, my kingdom is not like that. He drew a very stark contrast between what His kingdom was, the one He came to establish, and earthly kingdoms. So, the Bible says that Jesus came and He taught with authority. Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles in Luke again. Uh, Luke chapter, I want to read Luke chapter 4, verse 32. Jesus uh, was teaching, it says in verse 31, He went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. This was uh, shortly after His discussion and a sermon in, uh, in Nazareth, in the synagogue there. We're over on Sunday's lesson, the authority of Jesus. And it says, and when they were listening to Him, He was there teaching them on the Sabbaths, that they, and they were astonished at His teaching, for His Word was with what? His Word was with authority. What is, what is authority? What is authority? Authority is simply the power or right to give orders. <laughs> to make decisions or to enforce obedience. Now, uh, if you're in authority, you have that prerogative. Now, when Jesus came, He, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't for, came, didn't come to force obedience. He came to lead people into an obedient relationship with His heavenly Father. And He did that through a thing, thing called grace. 
but Jesus had the authority, and if, he, and if he wanted to, he could force obedience. But he didn't come to do that. God uh, appreciates us uh, and our service when we do so from a free will, from hearts who, that are willing and happy to, uh, to serve him and to love him and to obey him. Now, the Sabbath listeners at Capernaum, says, it says they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. It's interesting, the Greek word translated astonished literally means blown away in our modern vernacular. The, the, the individuals listening to Jesus' teaching were bl- literally blown away. And that reaction was the same uh, from those who heard Jesus' sermon on the mount. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 7, and you can read about that in verses 28 and 29. The listeners hearing Jesus' words were blown away by the way Jesus taught, His authority in which He taught. The scribes spoke, the lesson says that the scribes spoke by authority. They quoted what preceded them, but Jesus spoke with authority. After all, He was the Creator. After all, when He spoke, what happened? It was done. He commanded and it stood fast. When, God, when Jesus spoke this world into existence, things, things happened when Jesus spoke. And so when Jesus speaks, it comes with power and it comes with change and, and, um, and Jesus spoke with power. He was an authority. He was the Creator. And He also came with authority and spoke with authority and taught with authority because the Father had sent Him. He knew without a shadow of a doubt that His Father had given Him this work to do as His Son, you see. That's why Jesus was able, without any shame or embarrassment, He was able to confront Roman authorities. Uh, He had bowed before the great God of heaven, and certainly He was God in human flesh, but He bowed before His Father in prayer, and so He could stand before any man on earth. He confronted the Roman authorities, He confronted the Jewish scholars, He confronted just about anyone if they were uh, leading a path that was, um, walking a path that was going to lead him to destruction. He came to seek and save that which was, was lost. So, how much authority did Jesus have? There are several stories uh, in Luke, and let's look at uh, Luke chapter 22, sorry, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 22, and we'll go over to, uh, and read verse through verse 25. It says, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased and they were as calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. It's an amazing thing. This story <coughs> teaches us, excuse me, this story teaches us that the winds and the waves even obey Jesus. Again, he's the creator, they do that. Those, these, these inanimate objects are going to just listen to the voice of their creator and He calms the seas. Another story in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, uh, Jesus casts out a demon, or demons from an individual. The demons even obey Jesus. And just write this one down, Luke chapter 5, verse 24 to 26, Jesus cast out disease. Disease obeyed Jesus. 
the power of Jesus' word. He taught, he spoke with one who had authority. And then in Luke chapter 7, verse 49, he even had the authority to, to, to forgive somebody's sins, which was huge. Man came paralyzed, friends brought him, and, um, and they gave Jesus a hard time for forgiving this man's sins. Jesus said, what's easier, to tell a man his sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? And so with that, he looked at the man and said, get up, take up your bed, with authority, with power. And as, as faith reached out to the Word of God, something happened in that man and he got up. And he picked up his bed and he walked out of there, came in carried by his friends and left of his own accord, the power of God's Word. Luke chapter 12. Verse 8, Richard, thanks. Verse 8, Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Just, just let that soak in for just a moment. If we confess Jesus before men, Jesus is going to do what before the Father? He's going to confess us. He's going to say, here are my children. Here they are. Now, they're not worthy to be saved, but because I laid down my life, because I gave them my grace, because they received me by faith, because they believe and they love me. They are my children. Let them come. Let them come into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has the authority to determine who will be saved and who will be lost. Now, Jesus doesn't, doesn't pick and choose who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. We determine, really, whether we are going to be saved or whether we're going to be lost. Isn't that right? And Jesus basically is saying, if you've confessed me, I'm going to confess you. If you've done this, then I'm going to do this for you. And I have the authority to do that. No, no one on earth can do that. Not an angel could do that. Only the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus, has authority to save and to determine who gets to spend eternity with him. Now, of course, that choice is ours. But if we place our faith on the side of Jesus our lives on His side, our hearts in His hands, then He will declare us saved, His children, saved for eternity. So Jesus had authority in His teaching and in His life. The question for you and me is, does He have that same authority? The question is, when Jesus speaks, do we respond? When Jesus says something, do we say, okay, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to concede. I'm willing to admit. I'm willing to do question is, does Jesus have authority in your life, in my life? Jesus can have authority, but it's not going to do us any good personally if we don't declare that he has that authority in our lives. Jesus has said, do this. All right, Lord, I'm going to do it. By the way, by the way, in every one of Jesus' commands is a promise. You know that, right? In every command is a promise. When Jesus asks us to do something, he's saying, I give you the power to do it. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying you can just go off and do it on your own volition, do it in your own strength. It's, it's impossible, for without me, you can do nothing. But Paul says, with Christ, who strengthens you, you can do all things. You see, a wonderful promise. So we let God's Word, His authority into our lives. He changes us and makes us His very own. Let's go over to Monday's lesson. Christ's greatest sermon. Christ's greatest sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is hailed... <clears throat> in literature as the essence of Christianity. Now, the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, but Luke takes portions of it and he shares the instruction uh, of it uh, throughout his, his account, his gospel. And uh, the main portion of this 
of this sermon is found in Luke chapter 6, so might as well just turn over there. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. And I'm, uh, I'm not going to be so ambitious to think that we're going to get through everything that Jesus says here, but let's just touch on a few highlights here. By the way, just the context, um, the sermon was given in the late summer of AD 29, so it's coming down to the close of Jesus' ministry. This is when the sermon was given. Uh, in Luke's order, in Luke's account, he, he, he shares that Jesus spent all night in prayer, then he came down, uh, came down to ordain uh, the twelve, he ordained his twelve disciples, he, then he came, descended, descended down to the plain, and then he gave this sermon. So he spent all night in prayer, he ordains the twelve, comes down to the plain, and then he shares this particular sermon. Some have suggested that the sermon was an inaugural address to the, to, to the disciples. Um, the ordination of the twelve was the first step in the organization of the church, right? It certainly was. Uh, you had here, you had 12 charter members, technically. And, uh, and so the following words, these words, the Sermon on the Mount, could be considered the inaugural address. Because here you have Jesus lays down the condition of citizenship into his kingdom. He also gives his law, and then he delineates the objectives of the members, the citizens of his kingdom. So truly it could be considered an inaugural address. So let's talk about that. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uh, is teaching on the mount, is on the mountain. It's, uh, some have suggested it is the Sinai of the New Testament. It is the Sinai of the New Testament. More than 14 centuries earlier, Israel gathered in the Vale of Shechem. And from the mountain on either side, the voices of the priests could be heard declaring blessings and curses. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. But uh, it wasn't from Gerizim that Jesus was going to declare these words. And it wasn't Joshua who was going to lead his people into the promised land. This was Jesus, the one who would bring true rest to his people. And it was in an unnamed mountain that Jesus shared these words. It was a mountain beside the lake of Gennesaret. And so in Luke's account, Jesus' sermon begins with four blessings and four woes four blessings of the eight that Matthew shares. So it's good to compare these accounts together. It's interesting, Jesus shares blessings and curses. Who in the Old Testament was the only one who could pronounce blessings and curses? God. Now, Moses was the instrument, he was the human instrumentality to say, God has declared. So here Jesus is himself declaring blessings and curses or woes. My Bible and your Bible says that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Here you see the authority of Jesus again, expressed, sharing blesses, blessings and, and woes. And so it begins, look at chapter 6, uh, verse 20. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, or God. Blessed are you hunger now, for you shall be filled Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when you, they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Blessed or happy are you. Happy are you. Now Luke, in Luke's account, he seems to apply the Beatitudes more literally than Matthew, which becomes more apparent 
with the accompanying woes. The strong contrast between poverty, hunger, and persecution now, and the future state of blessing may at first uh, lend, seem to lend a materialistic slant to Christ's words, but that's not the case. Christ is simply contrasting the present state of those seeking the kingdom with their condition after entering the kingdom. So, Christ is contrasting the present state of those seeking the kingdom with their condition, the condition, uh, the same, the condition of the same after entering the kingdom. And so, Jesus says, happy are you. Happy are the poor. In Matthew's account, happy are those that mourn. He says, happy are you who hunger. How is it that you can be happy under those circumstances? Jesus is speaking spiritually, isn't He? Happy are, you, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That, why? Because you'll be filled. You'll be filled. You'll be called the children of God. You'll be called the sons of God. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Happy are you. In the Beatitudes, Jesus kind of basically spells out the steps towards salvation. Coming to God with a broken, contrite heart. Mourning for the fact that your sins have grieved His great heart of love and coming to Him and receiving forgiveness, Him teaching you meekness and how to be merciful and being a peacemaker. That's the work of Jesus in our lives right there. Happy are you. But then Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets." The best thing to do here is compare these words with the woes that Jesus pronounced on the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, Jesus' point to the religious leaders was, you guys look good on the outside, but inside you're, uh, basically, he said, you look, you're like whited sepulchers. You look great, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're corrupt. Uh, your faith is corroding. You're dead. And you need spiritual regeneration. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. Uh, you, you, you may laugh at the fact that others may fail. You may laugh at the fact that you're richer and more powerful than others, but your day is coming. If, you're, if, 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 pride, if pride is filling your heart, if self is filling your heart, it's not going to fare well for you. Woe to you. Woe to you. A curse to those who are filled with pride and self-sufficiency and have no need of a Savior. That's what Jesus is saying here. Woe to those who sense no need of a Savior. Well, let's go on. Let's take a look, verse 27 to 31. We won't read it all, but Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is an imperative to love, not to not hate. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't say, hey, don't, just go easy on your enemies. Don't hate your enemies. Instead, he says what? Love them. Love them. This is huge. This is divine love. This isn't love that you and I can manufacture. Uh, we need love from Jesus, love from above. What do you say? Truly. And then Jesus says, just jumping down a little bit to verse 30, he says, give to everyone who asks of you. And for him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. These words, give to everyone, doesn't mean to give him everything he asks for, nor does it require for us to give something every time you're asked. Christ means our giving should be habitual with us. It should be the, 
should be our life. It should be our habit, a heart that's willing to give. The instruction given here by Jesus in verses 27 to 31 does not mean that a Christian is obliged to give indiscriminately, irrespective of need. He will instead have a generous spirit that is ready and glad to give according to the need presented and according to our own ability to give. Those things need to be considered. He'll have a generous spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying that those who follow me will be disposed to cooperate with and help those who have a need than to push someone back and to oppose them. That's the contrast Jesus is drawing here. The heart of a follower of Jesus is more willing to help than to not help, more disposed to cooperate than to oppose. Now, over in verse 37, just jumping around here, verse 37, just want to touch on this. Jesus says, judge not, that ye be not judged, condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. That's right. This is not a call to set aside making distinctions between right and wrong. We should be able to judge and determine between what is right and wrong. Amen? Certainly, we ought to be able to do this. Jesus is saying you cannot, however, judge a person's motive or his character, you see, because that's not for us to give. Instead, it's a call to give the benefit of the doubt and to be gracious toward the other person. Jesus said, judge not and do not what? Condemn. So there we understand what Jesus is referring to. Some folk like to take this verse and say, you know, you're too judgmental, especially when a person's picking out, might be uh, uh, referencing a, a flaw or a fault or a lifestyle uh, issue that someone might be having. You're being too judgmental. God has not called us to bury our heads in the sand, to be ignorant with regard to what is right and what is wrong. He wants us to know the difference between right and wrong. However, He wants us to be gracious when we see wrong. He wants us to make sure that we take the beam out of our own eye before we remove the speck from someone else's. Now, before we get to that, Jesus uh, talks about the blind, leading the blind, and that's in verse 39. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a ditch? The disciple, you've heard the saying, a stream rises no higher than its what? You haven't heard the saying, okay, a stream rises no higher than its source. Now you've heard the saying, a stream rises no higher than its source. It's relationship, this story, the disciple, its relationship to the previous verse, judge not, equates the master, the man who is blind, attempting to lead the disciple who also is blind. The moral of this, of the story, the moral of this little parable is simply that those who, who would pose as a teacher of others must uh, have clear insight as to the matters to which they would teach or instruct others on. So that's the relationship between judge not and being a blind leader of the blind, you see. That's the moral. Unless they do their best, they'll reach a low standard. The parable illustrates the same lesson given in verse 41. Look at verse 41. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? A man, in other words, a man must see himself clearly before he can help others. Yeah. So don't be a blind leader of the blind. Don't be a blind leader of the blind. Before you instruct someone else, have clear insight as to what you're trying to instruct on. And don't judge others. Don't Make sure you take the plank out of your eye before you remove the speck in someone else's, you see. Make sure you have a you, you have a clear understanding of who you are. Let Jesus help you 
and then you're in a better position then to help someone else who may need help. Well, Jesus goes on to talk about in verse 43 uh, that you, uh, a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. How, do you, how can you tell what type of fruit tree it is? If the tree is producing figs, is it a peach tree? If the tree is producing lemons, is it an apple tree? You, you and I know the tree by the fruit it bears, right? And it's the same thing with the life. You will know a person by the life they live. You'll know who they are. A Christian is known by their works, by the life that they live, that their lives are congruent with the uh, teachings that they espouse, you see. And then Jesus closes the sermon by admonishing us to build on the rock. And what is the rock? The rock is Jesus and His what? His authoritative words, His authoritative teachings. Hard to build a good character on, this, on the shifting and sifting sands of philosophy and man's teachings. We must build our lives, our character on the sure foundation of God's Word. Amen? Surely. And then we build on a rock. So, and it doesn't matter. If the storm comes, we're going to be standing, standing rock solid. If the waves pound up against our shore, we're going to be standing solid because we're standing on something that's immovable. And that's the authoritative teachings of Jesus. Well, there's uh, so much to, to get into. We're going to have to run over to Tuesday's lesson, A New Family. It's evident from the life and ministry of Jesus that He was seeking to establish a new family. Uh, and how do we join this family? We're adopted by the Spirit of God, are we not? We're born again into the family of God. You can't say, God, I just, let, me just, uh, let me give you my birth certificate. Can you just take that name off and put your name on there? We must be what? Born again. Must be converted born from above, you see. So Jesus came uh, to establish a new family, not one defined by, ex uh, by caste or color or language or tribe or religion, but one defined by, uh, by charity, by agape love, unmerited, non-exclusive, universal and sacrificial love. Um, a family built on God's original for, uh, formula, found in creation that every human being is God's child made in His image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And being that, we're all equal in the eyes of God. Amen? Amen. It doesn't matter what our income looks like, what education you might have received, what your family name is, what church a person might even go to. In the eyes of God, we're all His children. We're equal. Equal in the eyes of God. Now, let's go over to Luke chapter 8. Let's take a look here. Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says something very interesting. <clears throat> Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Then his mother and brothers came to him, that is Jesus, and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told by him, told him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. That's curious. What is Jesus referring to here? Now, without minimizing the ties and the obligations that bind parents and children and sibling with sibling, etc., Jesus declared that all those who acknowledge God as their father are members of his family. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, uh, God is trying to bring together the whole family that is in heaven and that is on the earth earth. God wants to make us all one great, big, happy family, you see. 
And it's great to be a part of a loving, caring family. The ties that bind Christians to their Heavenly Father and therefore to one another are stronger and truer even than blood ties. It's said that blood is thicker than water. Well, if we've got Jesus' blood running through our veins, then the relationship that we have with one another ought to be stronger than our, our, uh, our relations, our family ties, if, especially if our family uh, isn't of our persuasion, of our faith. Don't love Jesus like you and I love Him. You know, you can travel anywhere in this world and you run into a Seventh-day Adventist church, and guess who you run into? Family. You run into family. It doesn't matter. Uh, in Australia, over in Brazil, um, in the islands, in uh, South America, well, it doesn't matter, anywhere, Africa, Europe, Asia, you run into an Adventist church, whether it be in a, in a building, whether it be in a home, you run into family. Uh, you just, you connect. There's something about being tied together by the Spirit of God, by truth, truth that sets us free, frees us to become the children of God. God is working to bring us into His family, you see. Now, there are se several um, stories that uh, teach us and speak to us about Jesus' attempt to break down and tear down barriers, barriers that hinder folk from becoming a part of the family of God. Someone has Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19. Okay, Mike has that. So we're going to come to you in just a moment. Just uh, write down some of these verses here. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. This is the story of Jesus' call to Matthew. What was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, he was despised and hated by the Jews because every time he collected their money, he was collecting it for the Romans, and it was a constant reminder that they were under Roman subjection, a thought and idea they loathed and they hated. So here was a, here was a guy who was considered to be low life in the eyes of the religious leaders. And what did Jesus do? He called him to be his disciple. Talk about breaking down barriers. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, Jesus is approached by a centurion, and the centurion's servant whom he loves is dying very, very sick. And uh, Jesus comes to heal him. As a matter of fact, the centurion says, you know what? You're a man of authority like I am. I tell this person to go, they do it. I tell them to do this, they go ahead and do it. Just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Talk about it, somebody who understood the authority of Jesus' words and ministry. Jesus heard, listened, and he healed the centurion's servant. Here was a Roman, again, despised and hated by the Jews. But Jesus did what? Reached out to him. And then Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Thanks, Mike. Luke 17, verse 11 through 19. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face and his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So how were the lepers considered <clears throat> in the eyes of the people back then? Low life. Yeah, you wouldn't want to come in touch with one of them. 
You could get contaminated, get what they've got, and yet what did Jesus do? He healed them. As a matter of fact, some were unthankful, and yet he still helped them. He still helped them. It doesn't matter whether they're considered to be the lowest of the low according to social standards, then Jesus revealed by his actions that people are of equal worth in the eyes of God. And sometimes that's very hard for us to learn. Sometimes it's very hard for us to not discriminate. Jesus wants us to be uh, non-discriminate. He wants us to treat everyone as He would treat them. Well, we go on to Wednesday's and Thursday's lesson, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to bring it all together here. Of the four Gospels, this is Luke chapter 10. Of the four Gospels, only Luke records the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the Good Samaritan. The first story illustrates the love that the Heavenly Father has towards sinners, The second story illustrates the love that we should have toward others because we appreciate the love that the Heavenly Father has shared with us. This is the response to the love that has been given to us and that we appreciate so much. Rather than putting people in their place, God is calling for us to put ourselves in people's place, to walk a mile in their shoes or walk a mile in someone's moccasins. It helps us understand a person. In the parable that Jesus taught, Uh, more than the principles of understanding and sympathy, was the necessity of empathy in all of our relationships. What's empathy? It's distinct from sympathy and pity. The word empathy is derived from the Greek word empathia, pathos, uh, in, rather in, in, or pathos, feeling and passion. In other words, it means the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. God is calling for His people to empathize. Empathy is the key cornerstone in genuine human relationships. It means the one with empathy is compassionate, while those without it consider others, don't consider others. I describe empathy as carrying someone else's pain or pleasure on your heart. So why should, who should I have empathy for? As a follower of Jesus, am I allowed to be selective, picky, maybe even clicky? As a Christian, am I at liberty to have empathy for a chosen, selected few, close friends perhaps, those that uh, I I scratch their back, they kind of scratch mine? In the two great commandments of life, Jesus told His followers to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. So to love our neighbor is to show our love to God. Question is, who then is my neighbor, who I am to love? Because that was the big question in the day of Jesus. The the story picks up in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. That was the big question at the time of Jesus. It was asked repeatedly, causing endless heated discussions. To the common Jew, their neighbor was not anyone outside their nation, and it certainly wasn't those Samaritans. But they did wonder where the distinction should be made among their own people in different classes of society. So, who was my neighbor? Jesus was about to, in this story, blow the top off of their cherished ideas and reveal what the true nature of religion looked like. He was about to show them that in reality, it is how we treat one another. That's what true religion boils down to. So, the Pharisees, it seems, put this young lawyer up to, in verse 25, up to asking Jesus this tricky question, good master, what may I do to receive or inherit eternal life? You have to understand that the religious leaders of that time believed that meticulous obedience to the law of God was imperative for eternal life, and they they believed that Jesus taught little of that in His ministry. 
So the question was designed to trip Jesus up. Yes, yet Jesus gave the lawyer the opportunity to answer his own question. He wasn't being rude or impolite. It was customary to allow a teacher of the law to give an explanation to their own question that they asked, you see. And so interestingly, when Jesus is given the opportunity to, to, to respond, he refers him back to the law, the law of God. The lawyer then, with confidence, uh, in Deuter he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 9. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus asked the question, what does the, what does the law say? That was his response, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, you see. These two great commandments were repeated every morning and evening by the most devout Jew as a part of the Shema, which was the confession of faith. It was, should have been known by those who had any insight at all that its principles were not arbitrary. These principles were based on the fundamental principles of right that will be summed up in the command to love, because after all, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus presented the whole law, not a section of it. Love to God, love man. Love man, love God, you see. How you and I treat a person reveals the length to which we love God. That's a tough thing to say and it's a tough thing to accept. So Jesus responds to the lawyer and he shows in verse 28 and shows clearly that our eternal destiny is determined by obedience to the law. But of course you and I can't keep the law in and of ourselves. We need grace from above. That's right. By accepting Christ's shed blood can we ever hope to be transformed to love God and our fellow man aright. So the lawyer answered correctly. He was familiar with the law. But the, law, the lawyer was only familiar with the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And so Jesus is going to now answer the question, who is my neighbor? Because that was the question he asked Jesus. Who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who is he? Of course, in the hope that Jesus will say, well, this person, this group right here, the elites over here, and these folk right over here, but those others, don't, don't worry about them. And Jesus was about to seriously disappoint them. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 30 to 37. Who has that? Right here. Okay, my friend Tim. Luke chapter 10. We're going to come to you in just a moment, Tim. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. Christ doesn't get into any controversy. Not going to get into any controversy. But he tells an incident that is fresh in the minds of the hearers. It's current news of the day. Um, Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. Thanks, Tim. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed, he passed on by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came, looked, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him, then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. 
Isn't that a beautiful story? So a certain man's traveling down from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's probably on business. We're not sure the real reason. He's traveling down the main road that follows through the dry, barren, uninhabited hills of the wilderness of Judea. It's a 17-mile journey. And at one point, the road narrows uh, with rocks and caves on either side, making a perfect spot for thieves to hide and surprise their unsuspecting victims. It's around that, that spot that this particular story, this tragedy occurs. The traveler's stripped, he's robbed and wounded, left half dead in the middle of the road. So the story continues, though. There's a certain priest, and he's traveling on the same road. Uh, it's likely that he's returning from his appointed time, serving down there at the temple. He spots and he sees this half-dying man, and yet he passes by him as if he has not seen him at all. And then a Levite, who's another religious leader, is traveling the same road in verse 32. And he's probably returning from his appointed term of service at the temple as well. He seems to be a little more conscientious, at least seems to be, but it becomes apparent that he's just curious because he just passes on by without lifting a hand to help. Here's what's amazing. Here were two religious leaders who had just gotten, come back from serving people down at the temple. Through Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Leviticus 19, God, Moses, through Moses, God had commanded, love the stranger, love him as yourself. The priests and the Levites were familiar with this particular teaching, and, uh, but they hadn't brought it into their affairs of everyday life. Now the hero of the story emerges, and that's verse 33. The Samaritan is traveling down this district. In this district, the unfor unfortunate traveler probably was a Jew, a member of the race that had hatred and despised the Samaritans. Interestingly, the greatest difference between the Jews and Samaritans was a difference in religious belief, a question as to what constitutes true worship. But the Samaritan, according to verse 33, had compassion on him. Even at the risk of being harmed, he still helped. He had compassion. He empathized for this poor man. Of all the people who should have passed by, it probably could have been this man. After all, the one who was lying on the ground was the one who despised his race. He could have easily justified walking by, right? This guy, look at the way they treat our, our race. Look at the way they treat us. He could have walked on by, but no. Irrespective of how he would have been treated, irrespective of how his family was treated, he still gave help because help was needed. This is unconditional love at play and at work here. The attitude that we show toward one another shows whether we have supreme love for God or not. We only love God as much as the person we like the least. We only love God as much as the person we like the least. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, if a, man, if a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he that doesn't love a brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And so what did the Samaritan do for this man? He came where he was, he saw him, he had compassion on him, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, poured in wine and oil, set him on his beast, brought him to the inn, took care of him, he treated him like he would... Yeah, he would have liked to have been treated himself if he were in the same boat... And that's the rule of life. That's the golden rule. Treat others as you yourself would want to be treated. True, the truth is that true empathy always leads a person to take the right action. And we can only have true empathy if Jesus is living and reigning in our hearts. 
If you stop and think about it, isn't that what Jesus did for us? Stepped down out of heaven, saw our plight, bound us up, poured wine and oil, his blood, Holy Spirit, the great cost that heaven paid for our healing and for our complete restoration. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. He carried us in his everlasting arms. He placed us within the safe confines of the church and he's given us the assurance that when he returns, he'll take care of whatever it was we paid to help other people. And so in summary, we discover here, or at least relearn, remind ourselves that Jesus, a teacher, taught with authority. He taught his followers how they should live. He taught his followers how they should relate to one another, how they should worship, and how they should witness. And the question for you and for me, because this is really what the, what the stories teach us here today, is are our lives, do our lives reflect a congruence between what it is we believe and what it is we actually practice? Is there congruence, is there harmony between what we believe and what we live? I pray, God, that that might be the case for each one of us. It's been a joy to teach again this morning. Hope you've been blessed and encouraged. And those that have tuned in as well, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to call in for the free offer. It's offer number 21522. Don't forget to put the C in front of it. Call 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at saccentral.org. Let us know how you're enjoying the programs. Share those DVDs and CDs far and wide. Tell others about the program and we look forward to seeing you next time.